Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the ongoing Leopard 2 tank saga as hopes rise of a breakthrough in deliveries of the vehicles. We hear from foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, who's been speaking to Ukrainian activists tearing down Russian statues. And Francis Sternley speaks to Dr Ivana Stradner, an expert in Russia's propaganda warfare, to examine how the West can fight back against Putin's disinformation, not just in the English-speaking world, but in Ukraine, Africa and the Balkans. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 24th of January, day 335. And with me to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, and foreign correspondent, Colin Freeman. I started by asking Venetia for the latest from the Telegraph's foreign desk. So there's a really big story that's literally evolving as we speak, um, and it's the biggest shake-up against corruption in Ukraine since the start of the war. Corruption is a long-standing problem for Ukraine. I think in 2021 they were ranked 122 out of 180 countries. So this is not something new, but of course there is a lot more at stake now that the West is helping with billions of dollars of aid and weapons, um, and now that Ukraine wants to join the EU. So we've seen the governors of five provinces on the front line resign today in Kyiv, Sumy, Denis Pro, Kirsten and Zaporizhia. And we've also seen a host of quite high profile officials resign or, you know, be pushed out, including the deputy defense minister, the deputy general prosecutor and the deputy head of Zelensky's office, along with a bunch of other ministers. Now, most of these are linked to corruption allegations, although not all of them. I'll give you a few examples to give you the, an idea of the kinds of things that have been riling people up in Ukraine. So the deputy prosecutor general, Alexei Simon. Simonenko, he took Christmas holidays in Spain and was pictured, you know, sort of enjoying that holiday while everyone else was suffering through a cold winter in Ukraine. Um, the deputy head of Zelensky's office, Kirilyu Tymoshenko, he's been implicated in a scandal over his use of luxury cars, pictured driving a Porsche around and questions over where he's got those cars from. And then the deputy defense minister, Vyacheslav Shapovalov, um, he allegedly brought military food supplies at inflated prices. So it just gives you an idea of the different sorts of corruption that 
um, are ongoing in Ukraine or sort of allegations around corruption. And some of it is about how bad it looks, obviously, if people in Ukraine are suffering through a terrible winter while Putin is bombing cities and energy infrastructure. You don't want to see officials on holiday in Spain. Um, and some of it is, is just really poor form, buying food supplies at higher prices when the country is already struggling economically and having to borrow lots of money. Um, it's just bad economics. So, you know, the, Zelensky has said that he's trying to crack down on this. His aide has said that his decisions show that the president sees and hears society and that he's directly responding to the key public demand of justice for all. Um, we have had a few purges um, in Ukraine so far to sort of try to tackle corruption. One was in the spy agency back in July. And we've also seen a sort of ongoing crackdown on um, people who might be uh, sort of saboteurs or tonecoats in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And that's been sort of ongoing over winter. So it's clearly something that is important to Zelensky. He wants to show that he's on top of this issue um, and that he's not just sort of letting the country take for granted all the assistance that it's been getting. Absolutely. I mean, it brings to mind what um, Roland was saying yesterday on yesterday's podcast about maybe there's a feeling now in, in Ukraine that politics is the, the moratorium of, of, of political um, uh, combat is, is, is potentially over with, with, with Zelensky's moves against corruption. Um, thanks for that, Venetia. Is there, are there any other updates from you before we head to Dom to talk about tanks? Well, yeah, just sort of give the, the news lines around on tanks today. Obviously, it's an issue that you guys have been crunching over in the last few um, podcasts. But t- today we heard that um, the German defence minister said that, you know, training can begin Um they're still waiting for the official sign-off. Poland has sent its request to Berlin now to authorise the green light for it to send its tanks to um, Ukraine. But I'll let Dom get into the nitty-gritty of all those details more shortly. Brilliant. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Venetia. It's really good to hear, hear you again. Um, Dom Nichols, can I turn to you? Um, what's been at the top of your inbox uh, this morning? Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. So a uh, bit of tanks first, shall we? Um, so the latest thing, so a, a, a senior Ukrainian, a senior unnamed Ukrainian official told ABC News uh, in the States of a deal made last Friday at the Ramstein meeting. Now, we remember that Alexei Reznikov, on the, after the meeting last Friday, he said he was very satisfied with the outcome, which you know, was the correct and polite thing and the, the politic thing to say. Um, we were all hoping that there'd be some movement on the on the. German on the Leopard 2 tanks, but there wasn't. So, you know, Reznikov says that and we'll go, yeah, OK, fine. That's, you know, he's, got, he's got to say that. However, ABC News is saying that um, that on this deal that was made last Friday, Ukraine are going to receive 100 Leopard 2 tanks from 12 countries once Germany gives the green light. This, there was a, an agreement thrashed out um, last week. So the likes of Poland, Denmark, the Netherlands, Spain are said to be um, all reportedly willing to send some of their tanks um, once once that consent is given. As Venetia just said, so Boris Pistorius, the German defence minister, he's told broadcaster ZDF, he said, I'm preparing for a possible decision to send the Leopard tanks and to allow other European and NATO partners to do the same. If the decision takes one or two days, and that's just the way it is. So fine, OK, two days. Um, however, you know, a, a, a touch of cold water here. Uh, th- that's not quite what Olaf Scholz is saying. He... Last night, he overruled his foreign minister um, to insist that Poland would need to follow the rules over sending tanks to Ukraine. Poland said that they, they could just do their own thing and, and send them. Olaf Schultz kind of you know, holding on to the party line. The Polish prime minister, in response to that, has said he wants a quick response from Germany because they have now formally submitted an, an official request um, to send their tanks. And uh, Mateusz Morozowski has said, I hope that the answer from Germany will come quickly because the Germans are delaying, dodging 
acting in a way that is difficult to understand. Uh, we can see that they do not want to help Ukraine defend itself in a wider way. Okay, right. Let's just let's just pause and take stock here because those are that's some quite quite strong language there from the um, from uh, Mr. Mushchowski. Uh I mean, I think I, Germans. He's saying Germans dodging, delaying. I think that's that's. I mean, they're delaying, possibly dodging. Uh, I don't know. Acting in a way that's difficult to understand. I disagree with. It is. It is. Uh, you could see why. A lot of people say, well, they should just be sending the tanks. However, to say that it's difficult to understand why they're not is to misunderstand German politics. And we've thrashed out in the last few days some, some thoughts on, on internal German politics and the position of Chancellor Schultz's um, his party, the SPD, and the coalition he leads with the Liberals and the Greens. So, you know, it's, there's some difficult politics there, which we've tried to un- unpick. And I think we've, we've done a fairly reasonable job of, of coming up with some some analysis there so i don't think it's fair to say it's difficult to understand um and then the comment we can see that they do not want to help ukraine defend itself in a wider way no 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 sorry i think i think that's a, a heat of the moment bit um heat of the moment statement there when we look at what else germany has done in terms of gepards iris t um, marda and so on and put it together with humanitarian aid and economic aid all told germany is uh, second after the united states you know forget the aid that Russia's been sending and you know, gifting other military equipment. But Germany is second to the US when you put the whole package together, military aid, money and humanitarian aid. So I just want to put this in perspective. You know, I've been bashing Germany. A lot of people have been bashing Germany. That is not to bash the country. That is to bash the decision not to allow other countries who are prepared to send their Leopard 2 tanks. So we've just got to we've just got to pass the two. And I don't think those comments are particularly helpful there from um, from the Polish uh, prime minister. Now, also going on today, NATO Sec Gen Jens Stoltenberg is hosting Boris Pistorius, the, the Germany's defence minister, today. A couple of pre- uh, did a press conference earlier on. Mr. Stoltenberg kind of made the same point I've just been making there, just trying to temper temper enthusiasms a little. He said. Germany plays a key role in our alliance. The Zeitenwend, remember that was um, announced early last year. That's the kind of epochal, once-in-a-generation you know, shift in foreign policy that Chancellor Schultz uh, said. He said. So Jens Stoltenberg carried on. The Zeitenwend announced by Chancellor Schultz is historic. With a special 100 billion euro defence fund, that's Germany alone, 100 billion euro defence fund for fifth-generation aircraft, new helicopters, ships, tanks and ammunition. You are already one of the biggest troop contributors to NATO's missions and operations. You lead NATO's forces in Lithuania. Your jets patrol allied skies and 15,000 German troops are committed to NATO's rapid response forces. This significantly tr- contributes to strengthen our deterrence and defence, unquote. Yeah, the point here is that yeah, Russia are looking for any, any way to... to say that there's a fracture in the uh, Western alliance, there's a fracture in NATO, there's there's areas to be exploited here. You know, they don't say, actually, these, these discussions, these decisions, these thoughts and ideas out in public, that's what a healthy democratic institution can do. And grown-ups can talk about these things in public and, and disagree, but still, you know, be friends at the end of it. But it's important just to make both these points, I think. So responding specifically about a question on on tanks that was put to him at the press conference, Jens Stoltenberg carried on. He said, I welcome also the clear message from the minister that our other allies, other NATO allies that have leopard, leopard battle tanks are, of course, free to identify those leopard battle tanks that may be available to Ukraine to make them ready, but also to start training of Ukrainian crews for those battle tanks, because after the decision has been taken on delivery of tanks, it will take some time to identify, to make ready and to train Ukrainian crews. 
and I welcome the clear message from Minister Pistorius that allies with Leopard battle tanks are actually urged to start that work. Germany is one of the allies that are providing the most support when it comes to artillery, ammunition, advanced air defence systems, the Gepards, the RST, and also now heavy infantry fighting vehicles, the Marders. These are important armoured capabilities that significantly strengthen the combat capability of Ukraine. We need to remember and recognise these significant German contributions. End of Jens Stoltenberg's quote. And yeah, I think that's I think that's right. You know, we are growing ups here. Yeah, we're able to hold two ideas in our heads at the one at one time that, yes, Germany is making a massive contribution. But also at the same time, Germany, you know, we're looking to you for leadership here. You want to be a big leader in in Europe. You, this whole idea of European sovereignty doesn't sit well with then having to look to the US for permissions and, and so on and so forth. So I think we are, as adults, able to put both these ideas together and discuss them without having you know, the Russell files piling go, ah, told you, you know, NATO is fracturing. You know, it's not, not that at all. We can discuss these things in the open and um, uh, and it doesn't mean that, that, you know, we're turning our back on Germany. But there is a legitimate question here that, that is uh, that is still flowing around. And I'll, um, I will take a pause there before we, before we dig into what are tanks. Thank you very much, uh, Dom. Yeah, just one, I've got one question for you just before we go into that, but just very quickly, I think we're having some technical issues uh, on this space in terms of getting our wonderful guest Colin Freeman on. So Colin, if you can hear us, I think my suggestion would be if you dr- if you drop, drop out of the space at the moment and then rejoin via the invite link um, that the main Telegraph account would have sent you, you should be able to join as a speaker uh, through that because you're not showing up as a speaker for me at the moment. So I think that might be the best thing to do. And just if we can get, let's try and get that sorted out while we carry on talking, talking with Dom now. So because of course we do want to hear... Um, from you and hear about your reports on Ukraine's statues wars later. So that would be my recommendation is if you if you drop out of the call now and try and rejoin with the the, the DM that should be in um, the message the, the invitation that should be in your DMs on on your phone. Um, so thank you very much, Colin. Um, Dom Nichols, can I ask you just to comment on this uh, intelligence update from? The British MOD, it's, I'm just going to read it out now. General Colonel Mikhail Teplinsky has likely been dismissed as one of Russia's key operational commanders in Ukraine. Um, he was the officer on the ground in charge of the uh, withdrawal from the west of the Dnipro in November uh, last year, and he had re- received praise in Russia as a capable and pragmatic commander. Uh, and I mean, it, 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 for, for us in the newsroom, it seems just an, an, another name, another another Russian commander on the, on the merry-go-round of, of gaining commands and, and losing them. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think it is part of the merry-go-round. I mean, they don't. I mean, the, the Russian generals and senior officers in field uh, combat commands in Ukraine seem to last less time than a Premiership football manager. I mean, they don't have any time at all to to demonstrate success or a, a path to success. Putin seems to demand success immediately, and um, and if you don't, then then you're off. So. Uh, Seemingly, when he was put into command, so General Sorovkin, when he went into command, it, it seemed like one of the first things he was able to do was convince Putin of the need for Russian forces to get out of Hezon, get across the Dnipro River and consolidate what they've got on the on the south bank, on the left bank of the Dnipro. And that's what they did. We were surprised, somewhat surprised at that, because Russia has not shown a willingness to do the sensible military thing and, and move back to consolidate positions when they were losing. Um, and we were also surprised at the time that there was no no heads rolled. Um, now, maybe this is it. This guy who's who's sacked today. Um, forgive me, I can't. I've got his name right in front of me. But he was in, he's in charge of the VDV units, the Russian Airborne Forces, and seemingly they were 
so they were down in Hezon. They were brought out first. A lot of the people that stayed behind, we think, were the mobilized troops. But they got the airborne forces, who are much better trained troops and we think equipped troops got them out first and then redeployment up redeployed them up into the donbass and it looks as if now there's the, the there's the head rolling for that and it speaks of again this turmoil at the top in the chain of command where you had Sorovkin and uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group. They seemed to be in the ascendancy until just a couple of weeks ago when Defence Minister Shoigu and the head of Russia's armed forces, Valery General Valery Gerasimov were put in charge of the war as well. So Grasimov is in charge of the whole Russia's armed forces. He's now also in charge of the day-to-day running of the war. You know, that is not that is not a very sensible command and control construct because, you know, he's busy running the whole of the armed forces. Give him another day job of running the war. That's very tricky. So it speaks of a little bit of turmoil at the um, at the very top of the, the Russian uh, chain of command. Of course, people are moved in and out of command uh, occasionally if, if, if it's required. I mean, it's not... You know, you'd be stupid just to hang on to people the whole time. People leave for all sorts of reasons, battlefield performance, um, injury, death, so on and so forth. And you find that some people who are very, very good at building a force and creating and training an armed force then might not be very good at leading them into battle. For example, Clausewitz, the, the old fellow himself, was, was supposedly very, very good at writing all this stuff down, but not actually very good at inspiring troops and the old blood and thunder, you know, speaking from the guts and getting, getting them up and out. You know, running at the enemy type thing so it's not uncommon to, to, to a very different style of leadership that that can be that can work in an organization in peacetime or, or even training in a combat uh, setting cannot then lead those troops in combat so of course you do get this you do get a little bit of shuffling um, but there's been so much of it with Russia's command that it, it, it is surprising and it speaks of a real political meddling um, and and that is not that is not good at all you know the the, yeah, very generally, of course, there's over, overlap, but very generally, the politicians should be looking up and out. They should be trying to work that the international arena, keep, keep the allies on on uh, on side, get the money, get the get the long lead items of of you know, diplomatic support and so on and so forth. And they should give the the room for a senior military commander just to get on with running the war and not be and not be um, having to look over their shoulder at the at the political context. So that. I mean, it seems as if Ukraine are much better able to do that um, with the split between uh, President Zelensky and General Zeluzny. You know, very clear roles, and they and they obviously interact probably on a daily basis, but they don't really seem to um, step into each other's sort of you know half of the pitch type thing. Very very different model, seemingly on Russia's side, where there's huge political interference and a lot of military decisions are made for political effect or with one eye to, you know, will the boss like this decision rather than what is going to be the effect on on the battlefield. So a really muddied, a really muddied command and control construct uh, in Russia. And um, General Mark Carlton Smith, former head of the British Army, uh, he was, one of the things he said, you know, I worked for him briefly for a couple of years in headquarters. Uh, one of the things he said was the very first thing you do as a commander is sort out that command and control. Just work out who needs to be where, what type of capabilities you need and who's in charge of those capabilities and how they all dock together. Get that bit right, which is literally on a bit of paper. So sit down, scratch your head, you know, draw it out on a bit of paper. Get that bit right and then go and fight the war. If you don't get that right, the command and control, then the, the rest of it just falls apart or you are, you know, you're really up against it. No matter how well-trained, well-equipped and how much motivation the men and women at ground level have to try and you know, take it to the enemy, 
if if the if the construct is not there and that organization that fundamental underpinning is not there it will eventually come a cropper and i think that's what what we've seen with russia um over the last no nearly a year now and um and it's just carrying on they don't seem to have time to to allow these people to to get in and 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 exert their their powers of personality and their and their personal motivation on the situation. It's always going to be difficult. Of course, when when you're put into command in war, you can practice as much as you like, do as many exercises as you like. It's going to be different when when it is actually a shooting match. But they just don't seem to be given the time to to make those adjustments, those personal adjustments to their style of leadership. And I think this is just this just continues that uh, that motion. And I think we're going to see more of it. That the the very heavy hand from Moscow. Um, really meddling down in, into very tactical levels in, in this war in Ukraine. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom Nichols. Um, let's go to Colin Freeman, who I think is on the call now. Thank you so much for joining us, Colin. Um, you've written an absolutely fascinating piece that is on the Telegraph website. If listeners want to go and read it, it's called The Ukrainian Culture Warriors Tearing Russian Statues Down. Uh, Colin, you've spoken to some of these activists who are, who are um, well, as you've, as you've written, tearing Russian statues down, taking them, taking them off their off their pedestals. Um, who did you speak to, and what are they doing? Uh, yes, so I spoke to an activist in Kiev when I was there just before Christmas, called uh, Oleg Slabopitsky. Slabopitsky. I apologise if I've mangled his name. Um, and what he does is he goes around Kiev, uh, trying to uh, de-Russify the place, as he puts it. Um, so uh, he he look he, he targets a- any streets where there are um, Russian uh, the, the streets that have their names um, on a Russia or the Soviet Union, um, and also organizes flash mobs that do graffiti on statues of Soviet generals and um, uh, other other sort of uh, politicians and literary figures and so on. Basically, anybody that is that reminds Ukrainians of Russia. Now, this is typically people from the Soviet period, your, you know, your Lenins and so on, and uh, people who were regarded as, as communist overlords, but also people from the Tsarist period as well. Um, uh, given that many Ukrainians regard the uh, the, the period of um, Soviet rule really as simply being an extension of the. Uh, the centuries of Tsarist colonization that uh, that Ukraine went under underwent before then. And did you get a sense from from him of what the, he and his activists are putting in their place, or is the focus at the moment very much, as you say, the de-Russification, the, the taking away of the statues, the dismantling of the statues, the taking away of the Russian names? Have have they thought much about what what they're changing them to? They have, yes. Uh, so, sometimes it's just simply removing uh, large Russian statues. Um, but uh, a lot of the um, the street names that they're getting that they want changed, they have uh, suggestions for Ukrainian cultural figures uh, to be uh, put up instead. Um, streets named after Ukrainian poets or writers, many of whom, according to this activist, are, are somewhat overlooked in in Ukraine's general cultural scene. Again, as a result of um, the, the the years. Of, of domination during the Soviet period where Russian-speaking figures and, and, and figures from Moscow were, were often given pride of place. Um, so that there's there's quite a few Ukrainian cultural and literary figures that are coming up. Um, there's also, of course, uh, 
plans to rename quite a lot of the streets after um, people, fallen heroes from the current war, of which uh, there are there are no shortage. That's I mean that's absolutely fascinating. Did 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 you get any sense from him that there's uh, any pushback or resistance to to what to what they're doing uh, in 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 Kiev, or, or are is the population very much on side? Generally, I sense that the population is pretty on side. You have to remember that. Um, you know, we think of statue wars as being a Western thing. Uh, this part of the world, the former Soviet Union, um, in a way, wrote the book on statue wars after the fall of communism. When, uh, as we all remember, you know, when, when the Berlin Wall fell, lots of statues of Stalin and Lenin being taken down. Um, however, th- that process apparently w- was much more marked in Eastern Europe and the Baltic states in Ukraine. Uh, which was rather more heavily under the the, the Soviet footprint, the, the Moscow footprint, um, and a lot of the leaders were a, a little bit more Soviet leaning and been brought up in that that school of thought. They weren't Václav Havels in, of of, Czech, uh, of the Czech Republic, sorry, Czechoslovakia, as it was that um, they, they they tended the, the statues of Lenin and so on tended to be less there. But then when Ukraine had its uh, Maidan revolution, its pro-Western revolution in 2014, there was a renewed campaign then um, of so-called decommunization, which I think was an attempt to just rid rid themselves of the vestiges of the the Soviet period, um, again, to kind of rid themselves of of those legacies of Russian rule. Um, That campaign, I think, attracted broad support, certainly in the pro-Western um, uh, areas of Ukraine, less so in the in the pro-Russian areas, of course, in the east. Um, but then, after the the current invasion uh, began last year, uh, that the campaign has, has has gained a great deal of momentum. Um, and also um, earlier this, uh, I think, in in at the end of April, in the wake of all the atrocities in places like being discovered in places like Butcher and Irpin. A new campaign also got, uh, gained momentum called P- uh, Pushkin Fall, um, I think modelled perhaps on the Roads Must Fall campaign in the West, um, which was against the the poet, the Russian poet Pushkin, who was regarded as a sort of Russian Shakespeare and very much the father of um, uh, Russian culture and Russia's very grand literary tradition. Um, and um, uh, lots of statues of Pushkin started getting taken down um, they, these are all over uh, Ukraine, as indeed they are over Russia and, and many other parts of the world. It's kind of a, 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 a Russian global cultural token, if you like. Um, the Ukrainian view was that um, Pushkin um, was, you know, a, 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 was bit, these statues were being used as a, a sort of cultural marker um by the russians that this was a that, you know anywhere that had a statue of pushkin was a, essentially a legitimate russian a, a, a legitimate part of of the russian world and therefore you know um Vlad, someone like vladimir putin would be entitled to exercise his rule there um they also said that pushkin was a an unabashed russian imperialist which if you read some of his um uh, his lines um where he, he rails against people who slander Ru- slander Russia, um, he he probably was, but to some extent he was probably just um, you know uh, aping the, the 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 political outlooks of the day, just as we we get some of our own um, great cultural figures from the past 
uh, tended to have imperialist views that um, we find in Britain are a bit you know problematic these days. Um, th- this is where it gets a bit difficult because um, there are those who say, look, um, it's one thing to remove statues of Soviet generals or statues of Lenin or Stalin or whatever. It's a bit different to remove statues of somebody like Pushkin because what Pushkin gave was perhaps more than just um, uh, you know an imperialist view of Russia. He gave culture. He gave um, you know he bequeathed a great literary tradition, and he also apparently was a champion of many Ukrainian uh, literary figures during his time. Um, however, um, I, the, the Ukrainians kind of reject this at the moment, or certainly the ones I've spoken to, and I, I should you know, stress that the, I, I haven't spoken to everybody. There's a multiplicity of views on this very sensitive subject, but a lot of them say, well, look, I'm sorry about that, but in the wake of what happened in Butcher, we don't really want any Russian-speaking, uh, li- you know, r- Russian literary figures on our streets at the moment in the form of street names or of statues, um, especially when, like Pushkin, we think they are used as a kind of um, a-, a marker to mark this out as being part of Moscow's sphere of influence. That doesn't make us feel comfortable. That makes us feel vulnerable, and frankly, we don't like them. Um, and uh, one guy even said to me, look, even if Pushkin's statues were not used in this fashion, the fact is that he's um, a, a Russian-speaking poet and I'm not really in the mood for um, hearing about Russian-speaking poets at the moment. He, he, he used the analogy of Britain in World War II. He said, w- would you expect Britons to be reading Go- you know, uh, um, verse by Goethe, the German poet, or expect to have statues of Wagner up during World War One or World War Two, and I expect the answer um, uh, to that is probably no. Well, this is ab- absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Colin, for sort of talking us through some some of the uh, the, the views of the people you've spoken to. I, m- I mean, one one thing maybe to be good to hear you touch on is how this is isn't taking place in a vacuum. Of course, it's there's 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 a broad trend of derussification in Ukraine. I mean, we've we've spoken to many Ukrainians about this, and part of it is is is, is language, and many Ukrainians feeling that actually now they, they, they'd much rather speak Ukrainian than Russian, even if they, they are Russian speakers. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and put, 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 this, put this Pushkin fall into, into sort of cultural context for us? Yes. Um, the, the, again, this has been a movement that's been ongoing, I think, really since independence in 1991, the move towards um, uh, rediscovering Ukrainian as a language, um, uh, you know, uh, partly just, you know, a, 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 a sort of, a typical post-independence move to rediscover a, a nation's um, cultural roots and so on. Um, again, I think it, it gained ground um, after the Orange Revolution in 2004 and again in, t- in 2014, um, and it's gained further ground now. I've met quite a few Ukrainians who say they only really want to speak Ukrainian now uh, and they don't really want to learn Russian anymore. Um uh, obviously, if you envisage that happening in a country where it's previously been bilingual in, in many parts, um, that there is a potential worry there that uh, you, you might be you might be sowing division um, between those who want to only speak Ukrainian and those in certainly in the Russian speaking areas or the, uh, who would prefer not to perhaps be coerced into only speaking Russian. This has proved a flashpoint in the past. One of the Reasons that um, that you know the, the separatists in uh, in eastern Ukraine were able to 
get you know, rile people up in 2014 was because of moves to restrict the use of Russian as an official language in in that area by the Kiev government. Um, so um, you, you can see it perhaps becoming a bit of a flashpoint. Uh, one linguistic expert I spoke to said he'd actually conducted his own experiment, um, social experiment on the streets of Kiev. He'd gone out, he'd spoken to a number of people in Russian just to see if they would uh, insist on speaking uh, in Ukrainian to him. I, th- I think he perhaps targeted people who he suspected would prefer to speak just Ukrainian. And at no point he, did he say that anybody was rude to him or said, look, I'm sorry, I only speak Ukrainian. So he did. He doubted it would be a flashpoint of, uh, of, of any kind. Um, I should stress I'm not an expert on this, so I can't verify what else he told me, which was that um, uh, most people can, after 30 years in which Ukrainian has been taught in schools as well, he said most people you know, can, can switch relatively easily from one to another. So he didn't see too much of an issue with that. And certainly a lot of Ukrainians um, talk of this in a positive fashion. It's about rediscovering um, th- their own cultural identity and, uh, and, and promoting that, uh, not trying to deny anybody else um, uh, their identity. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Dom, I believe you've got a question. Yeah, sure. Hi, Colin. Lovely to hear from you. Just just a, a quick, if I may, from your experience of working um, in other parts of the world, Africa especially, where do you, can you project forward where this to attack, these attacks on culture can go? It's one thing to say, yeah, we're not denying all Russian culture, uh, but now's not the time. We're just not in the mood to, to sort of split hairs between who are the good and the bad poets, for example. I mean, that they can very rapidly turn into entrenched positions and and just like I say from your experience can you see can you project where this might go and is is it always good do people come back to appreciating the other side in some way um that I think is is quite hard to say I think it's true that in the in countries that have had a and this is a massive generalization but in countries I've visited that have had a a rather happier or smoother transition from the colonial period and where the problems associated with leaving, um, you know, ending a period of colonization are are, are now receding into the distance. There is sometimes a more relaxed attitude about um, the legacies of the colonial past. They're sometimes seen as, uh, some people are perhaps more disposed to see the benefits and they're also uh, sometimes disposed to sort of laugh at it a bit. It's something they can treat with a bit of humour. Um, I think in countries, in, in many parts of Africa, for example, where these issues are, are still felt more keenly and um, life is, the, the, the transition has not been so easy. Um, p- people are, 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 you know, um, are, are not, not in quite such a mood to take benign points of view on it. Although everywhere I've ever been, um, around the world, I've I've encountered unfashionably pro imperialist views as well. I've been to many places where we people have said, "Oh, it would be better if you British were still running things, or you British still, uh, you know, did did quite well when when you were here, even though we wouldn't want you anymore." Um, which is not a view that I think you would um, hear many British people expressing these days. Uh, not 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 particularly widespread, but. It is surprising sometimes when you hear that uh, when when you hear that said. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's really good to, to hear you again. And thank you for, for coming on. Um, we're going to start to, to wrap up, I think. Uh, but Don, we did have a question from a listener I thought would be quite interesting for you for you to respond to. So let me just get it up. I really should have had this up before doing this. Um, let me just find it. It's a question about um, uh, tanks. This is from uh, Elizabeth. Uh, so thank you very much, Elizabeth, for sending this in. Uh, this is around the tank delivery to Ukraine. She asks, a technical question for Dom. The Russian tanks were taken out pretty easily by the Ukrainians. Why would the Leopards uh, not be taken out similarly by the Russians? I think there's quite a lot to unpack there. Um, please go for it. Yeah, there is. I'll try and be brief because of, of time. And um, we, d- we do need to do a, a, another look at kind of you know, what tanks are and especially what they're not. But But this links to it in some way. Elizabeth, thanks for the question. So basically, tanks are, as I've said before, tanks tanks are seen as um, the most efficient way of balancing three competing requirements on the battlefield. So that's mobility, firepower, and protection. Mobility being able to go, well, ideally everywhere, although even tracks can't get you everywhere. Um, firepower, having a having a great big gun, and um, and protection, being able to being able to take a take a punch and and keep going. Now, traditionally, tanks are going to be moving forwards towards enemy positions. If you think of the, the sort of old days of lines, which is kind of where the war in Ukraine is getting to now with these fixed lines, very fixed fixed lines. Um, so you know where the enemy are and you drive towards them. Because tanks can't move if they are absolutely covered in armour from every direction, sides and the back and the belly and the top, um, covered in, in armour to take that punch. The armour on a tank, the, the really thick stuff, is in the frontal 60 degree arc. So if you stood on a turret, if the turret was pointing over the front of the on the front of the uh, front of the en- uh, sorry front of the tank pointing towards the enemy, if you held your arms out at 60 degrees in front of you, that's where the armour is. So in front of the turret and on front of the hull and down the sort of first third, if you like, of the uh, of the hull as well. So so the armour on the tank is thin on the sides, at the back, on the belly and uh, and the top. So those areas are always vulnerable. Now if you um, have a um, a 360 degree battlefield, which is especially so in an urban setting where people can get into tower blocks and fire down on you or go through the sewers and the underground systems and come up underneath you, or it's very easy to hide around corners and so on and so forth, you, then you can hit tanks in these really vulnerable areas. Now, that's not to say that you'll kill everybody inside. You might just blow the tracks off. You might blow the engine up. It might not be able to move. It might still be able to use its gun. So even though it can't move somewhere, it's still quite quite a potent thing. Um, or you might have knocked the gun out as well. But like I say, you don't always kill all the crew inside. But tanks, like I say, are, are not impervious from all angles. And the more that you have a very fluid environment um, and, and not these static lines that you can you can race towards just pointing your really armoured bits at the enemy, then the more vulnerable you are. Add to that the fact that, that the vast majority of the tanks that Russia has put in the field here, the T-72s, um, are quite old, so their armour is not is not especially thick. Nothing like the armour in terms of the 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 technical ability to withstand um, a hit that the Western tanks have. So the Russian tanks are older, and they have these things on them that you'll see these boxes, almost sort of shoebox sized things called ERA. That's explosive reactive armour. These are literally two bits of metal. Well. Not literally, but essentially two bits of metal with an explosive charge in between them. So a, a round comes in towards the tank to try and hit the tank. It hits that explosive reactive armour. The charge goes off inside the box and physically pushes the upper plate away. So it tries to push the incoming round away from the tank and protect the tank that way. Now, modern anti-tank weapons like the US Javelin have dual 
warheads. So they've got two two warheads on the missile. So the first warhead sets off the ERA, and the second warhead then goes goes against the tank itself, which, as I said, quite old. The steel isn't very thick, and it can go straight through. Allied to that, of course, we've seen a lot of this ERA just hasn't worked because a lot of it's old, it hasn't been maintained properly, it doesn't work, it's been sold off. There's long, long known corruption in the Russian logistics system. So a lot of the tanks that we see knocked out on the battlefield, you'll still see the ERA completely intact. Whereas if it had worked properly, that that would not be there. It would have exploded. Looks a right mess, but the tank survives and the crew survive is the, is the main point. So that largely it's Russia's got older tanks. They are not working as as they should do with the ERA, um, and also it's it's very rarely now a static battlefield where you're you're able to point your main bit of armor towards the enemy because they can hit you around the sides, around the back. We saw that when Russia tried to go into Kiev in the first few weeks. These these um, these packs of Ukrainian infantry that were that were going around with anti tank weapons, they were able, I mean, take great cuts to do it, you know, to sneak around the back of a tank formation and hit them from the bum. Um, you know, like I say, it might not knock out the entire tank, might not kill the crew inside, but it's it's not going to go anywhere if the engine's blown up and the tracks tracks have come off it and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, tanks are very very vulnerable at the best of times. The battlefield is a really real dangerous place. Um, if you're able to use tanks protected by infantry, with or without infantry personnel carriers or infantry fighting vehicles and armoured personnel carriers, but if you're able to use able to protect tanks, then they can bring their the, the, the mobility and the firepower part of that holy trinity to bear. But yeah, when it comes to the P, the protection, the frontal arc is very good, but elsewhere they are still extremely vulnerable. I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Elizabeth. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dom. And yeah, just to add to that, I mean, Dom, as you said, you know, tanks are still incredibly dangerous, even if they're even if they're sort of disabled. I mean, I was, t- I was told of one incident um, in, in, in this war where, where a Russian tank had its tanks had its tra- track sorry blown off uh the the gunners inside panicked and started shooting shooting in all all, all different directions because they weren't sure where where the incoming fire was coming from and and you know all all, all hell was let loose but by, by that so so absolutely you know it's, it's not just a matter of not just not tanks can be incredibly dangerous e- even if even if damaged so thank you dom uh for your answer thank you elizabeth for your question um i feel like we've reached the end of our time here today together so thank you dom thank you colin thank you venetia can i just have your quickly your final thoughts um uh, dom why don't you go first what will you be looking to over the next few days well um two things got to keep an eye on the tank debate with germany um, we've done that one to death secondly i mentioned in today's newsletter if you sign up for for telegraph dispatches newsletter tuesdays and thursdays have the foreign newsletter tuesdays is always ukraine i made the point today about south africa um, lavrov's down there at the moment courting south africa long-standing ties between south africa and the ussr now now russia really interesting story from late december only really coming to light now of a of a container ship that is that's owned by a russian firm um, that is sanctioned, that turned its AIS transponder off, so you know, no, didn't know where it w- was going, came into port in South Africa, not a commercial port as you'd expect a freighter to go to, went to the local naval facility, unloaded suspiciously at night over three days with the, the stuff that was taken off, led away in trucks with armed military escorts. So quite what the hell was going on there, we do not know. We think possibly this was Russian supply of ammunition to South African special forces fighting in Mozambique. What they're getting in return, we don't know. But it just shows that this 
this diplomatic front. Yeah, you know, we, we're very focused on the on the battlefield, of course, we are, and the and the politics in Europe at the moment. But the wider diplomatic front of trying to court those parts of the world who are ambivalent or, or at best, or actually, you know, side with Russia because of long-standing ties or business or what have you, economics. Um, it's very interesting to see what's happening on the diplomatic front because if this, if this, um, if the UN has a greater role. To, to say in what happens here, then it's those other countries in the General Assembly, all of whom have a vote, that if they've been courted by Russia, then um, you, you, know, you can see the, the, the peril that that could cause. So just a, a spotlight on South Africa because of Lavrov's visit there um, right now, but just sort of highlights this wider diplomatic front to this, uh, to this war. Thanks, Darwin. I, b- I believe part of that was, was highlighted by a listener writing in, so thank you very much, um, Thank you very much for that. Am I right in saying that, Dom? Just, just to make sure I'm... Yeah, Stuart, many thanks for, uh, for pointing me towards that story from South Africa. So thank you. Thank you very much, Stuart. Um, Colin Freeman, uh, what are your final thoughts? Uh, well, yeah, just, uh, uh, just to add, um, having talked about activists removing street signs and uh, daubing statues with graffiti and so on, um, I should just also point out that um, the activists I interviewed in Kiev who want to prosecute this, this de-Russia campaign uh, as so, so, uh, uh, by which I mean, who who want to you know de-Russify stuff, um, they are keen that it is not actually done by activist mobs. They want due procedure uh, in place, um, uh, which is something that they regard as being part of a democratic society. I.e., they want all these statues removed by city council votes uh, and therefore debates and so on. And um, Kiev city council has actually already. I think earmarked about forty streets and monuments for um, uh, either for you know for, for, for renaming or for dismantling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, as with all these sorts of culture war debates, if you want to use that expression, um, that there is a lot of nuance in it, and there are no real right answers one way or the other. Although I should point out that I've I've had this discussion um, once or twice with quite a lot of Ukrainians when I've been in Ukraine, where occasionally they they talk about you know promoting the Ukrainian language or uh, or whatever, and and sometimes you want to say well you, you know you don't want to become too uh, too stridently um, anti-Russian, you know your war is with the, um, the, the 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 Russian government and so on, um, and uh, sometimes you. That that is acknowledged. You, you do sometimes though feel the strength of feeling. I think that is directed not just at the Russian government now, but also to some extent perhaps at um, the, the, those element, large elements of the Russian population that appear to support the war. Um, and I guess that just demonstrates this is what war does to you. Um, and certainly as, as a as a foreigner who can scuttle uh, back out of Ukraine back to his comfortable home. Uh, in uh, in the UK at any point, I I think it, it it I I don't really feel I have much to say by way of riposte to that. Thanks, David, and the rest of the team. This is Francis in one of the other studios here at the Telegraph. On Ukraine, the latest, we often find ourselves examining the role of Putin's disinformation campaigns within Russia and abroad, and how the West can battle against them. To dive deeper into this, I interviewed Dr. Ivana Stradner, a former visiting scholar at Harvard and now a research fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies in Washington, D.C., to discuss the effectiveness of information warfare and Western countermeasures. 
We also looked at a region that has been under-discussed on the podcast so far, the Balkans, and Russia's role in destabilising that region where volatility can often spill over into the rest of the European continent. This is our conversation. Thank you very much for joining us, Ivana. Just starting us off, some analysts believe that the West can only have a minimal impact in cutting through to the Russian people about the war being conducted in their name and the consequences for them personally. You, however, are more optimistic as to what can be achieved. So in your view, how can the West do more to win the psychological and informational battle within Russia itself? Thank you very much for inviting me and... I don't know whether I'm more optimistic or not, but I think that we have no other choice than to try to penetrate inside Russian information system. And this is precisely why. Uh, So for many, many years, Washington has been inside the Russian information system selling Russians on the American dream, telling them about our democracy here, about the benefits of modern art, about Hollywood movies, just name it. This is really nothing new. This is the relic of the Cold War. But something like that will not be helpful these days because the rise of nationalism is so high inside Russia. So we have to actually alter our messages. And the best way, really, instead of selling Russians on the American dream, we should sell them the Russian dream that benefits and suits our interests. So the reason why I emphasize that we should actually try to go inside the Russian information uh, system is not because I do believe that suddenly a lot of Russians will be in the street protesting against putting, uh, uh, putting aggression in Ukraine but rather because we need to make Russian intelligence and their time and energy and resources to benefit us from uh, to defend themselves from our information operations. And the reason why I emphasize this is because the rise of nationalism is extremely important. There is this belief that the Russians, they want to live in the great, you know, better Russian world. And unfortunately, today, more than 75% of people inside Russia actually do not appreciate the United States. But that rise of nationalism can actually be an asset for us. And when I talk for us, I don't only mean, you know, for the U.S., but also the U.K. and our allies. And uh, uh, I think we need to send them messages that will resonate with the Russian people. Like, for example, the Russian people are very proud of their country. And we need to actually target those far-right groups and to tell them that Russia could have been the great power and that Russia could have been the great Russia if it was not Putin who destroyed Russian reputation. So that's one of the, of the messages. The, the second thing is, I always like to say that the Russian people, they, they cultivated this whole thing of a strongman image in, inside Russia. And you will see like Vladimir Putin always uh, uh, looking good on pictures and uh, writing all those, you know, animals and 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 and, and swimming in in cold water, and and that's relevant because if we go back all the way, you know, to the Cold War, uh, uh, Russian people were punished for questioning nationalism, and this is, you know, why I think we need to spread those messages. And I like to always say that humor can be immensely powerful tool because we should put Russia always on the defensive, never to, you know, 
uh, every time when they spread this information campaign like that we have to say they're wrong. On the contrary, and Russian people have a very, very good sense of humor and they like to make jokes of their own leaders historically. And let's help them. You know, uh, I always like to use my favorite uh, example of Stalin, because right now it's unfortunately happening in Russia. Stalin has a tremendously important role. And United Kingdom, uh, actually, there was this famous movie, The Death of Stalin, that Russia actually accused the United Kingdom of uh, an intelligence, you know, for creating information operations that degraded like a Russian, um, Russian greatness. So they banned that movie. No, let's do that again. Let's, you know, make similar movies. Let's like make memes and, and put it like in Russian information space. They will really, really, really uh, dislike something like that. As I said, I'm not very optimistic that something like that can help Russia suddenly become democracy because we abandoned information operations after the end of the Cold War. So first thing what we need to do, we need to do our info-ops and psychological warfare to neutralize the nationalist and to pollute information space and then maybe, you know, one day to create new, new narratives. Um, you know, I want to always emphasize one tremendously important thing is when people in the West talk about psychological information operations, they talk about some random propaganda, some disinformation. No, we are in the middle of information war with Russia. And we need to think like in the way that Kremlin thinks about this. So in 2021, our Russian Russia adopted a new national security strategy and for the first time, we devoted a special chapter on information operations. And it's fascinating to see that because Russia has historically had this paranoia that the West is actually using information operations inside Russia. So they always, you know, claim that we are going after their youth to spread, you know, our uh, our values that are not in alignment with Russian moral and spiritual values. And actually, a few weeks ago, actually, Shoigu openly stated that we are waging a psychological war. And the only thing that I have to say about that, if only. So um, um, all those things, you know, when you read all those documents can be very helpful to understand how they think about information warfare. And if we want to counter that, we need to think like them. I'm not saying that we should ever spread the disinformation because the truth is on our side, but we do need to understand that even their military values, four to one military measures, non-military to military measures. So if they think that this is so relevant, then it should be you no know, relevant for us because one thing that I can guarantee you that Russia will not throw on tanks in London or Washington, but that what they will continue to do to use asymmetric opportunities to polarize our countries, to sow chaos inside, both inside United Kingdom and United States and European Union and elsewhere. Fascinating. I was very struck also when you were talking about the Soviet humour. It just reminded me of Ronald Reagan's speeches during the Cold War. And uh, apparently those were real Soviet jokes, which, of course, speaks to what your point is, is that actually there is a sort of black humour in, in Russia, which we don't really hear very much of. Just staying on this point uh, about effective propaganda in Russia, or perhaps not the propaganda, sorry, but effective messaging, should I say, to, to, to clarify my point, effective messaging within Russia. 
Arnold Schwarzenegger did that really interesting video early on in the war where he, I think, did a little bit of what you were saying, which is that he sort of appealed to the Russian character, Russian pride. And that really went viral all over the Internet. And I'm just wondering whether you think that's an example of what the West should be doing more of. First of all, I'm, I was so happy when you mentioned Reagan, because looking back you know, at all those videos where he was making all the jokes. I mean, he even made a joke that was later, you know, leaked on the radio, something along those lines, there are lines like, dear fellow Americans, we are going to start bombing Russia like in five minutes. And that really tells you everything you need to know how bad then people didn't fear Moscow regardless of their nuclear threats. And nowadays, one of the reasons why people are afraid to use informa offensive information operations is because they do not want to provoke Russia. They do not want to provoke Putin, which is absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, they already think that we are doing that, so we should be doing that. In terms of Schwarzenegger video, I saw that video first time on, on, on Twitter, um, and it conveyed a very beautiful message addressing the Russian people alike, and it had a, a subtitle in, in Russian. Everything was fine, except for the fact that back then, 3% of the Russians used Twitter. And only after they put like in the Russian information space, like a, a Telegram and in a few other places. However, that video is something what we would probably do like during the Cold War back then. Nowadays, such messages will not resonate with with uh, with 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 uh, within a retraction because all people who are pro Western, uh, they already know these things, and uh, um, and the far right groups they consider you know such messages coming from foreign agents. What we need to think about, we need to think about putting those messages through uh, their people, like through people who have trust, you know, within those groups. And um, I cannot emphasize enough, you know, how much I wish that the United States and our allies actually provided more opportunities to the Russian people to give them every possible platform to address the Russians speaking not only their language, but their culture, who can, um, you know, spread those messages again. Look, I'm not optimistic, and I have to emphasize this, that any of such information operations will end the war. But I do believe that it will irritate the Kremlin a lot. And that will actually make Russian intelligence spend more time on protecting their own information space instead of attacking us. Funneling those resources that they'd otherwise be using for disinformation purposes themselves, just using it to try and counter... Western narratives. Yes. Just staying on this topic, it's so interesting hearing your perspective on all of this. Do you think in the modern age, this sort of, you know, when I was growing up, the internet was talked about as this great liberational force and that regardless of what one was trying to do on the internet, that by its very character, you know, the medium is the message, we would all be in some way liberated by this. Do you think it is easier or harder to control hearts and minds in the internet age, particularly in a country like Russia that has so much control over the internet? It is extremely difficult because, look, back then we were able, for example, to send Dr. Zhivago inside Russia or to use American modern art or like a Jackson Pollock who traveled, you know, across Eastern Europe 
to tell people like my family what it means actually to have like liberal values. Nowadays, it's extremely difficult because we are fighting as democracy, we are fighting authoritarian regime, and Russia believes in internet sovereignty. So they completely, you know, shut down their information information space. Like it is nowadays, if you use the word war instead of special military operation, you can end up in war. And, you know, in 2022, everyone was like so appalled, you know, that Russia suddenly, you know, decided not to allow the use of Twitter or Facebook. This is nothing new because Putin has been working on this for years. And he actually even had a legislation a few years ago where he would punish all those social media platforms who would not comply, you know, with the Kremlin's view, allegedly saying, oh, you know, they were posting something related, let's say, to child pornography. Um, And there is nothing more in the authoritarian systems fear than the freedom of thought and the ideas. And this is why they're afraid of having a free information space. So it is extremely difficult to do it, but it's not impossible. Um, and it's much easier, you know, for a territorial system to spread their disinformation um, campaigns here. And this is why I cannot emphasize enough that we need to stop talking about Russian disinformation as some random propaganda. This is an information warfare tool. And if you go and read like a Russian, the definition of information warfare in Russian Minister of Defense website, they are openly talking about using all those, you know, psychological operations tool to solve, like to polarize people. So this is really, you know, nothing new. And it's it's challenging, but it's not impossible. The problem is, you know, that nowadays a lot of people live in a very risk-averse world when it comes to jobs. People are afraid to do these things because to do it, you need to nowadays build up a bit more edgy and to put like some controversial information and people are afraid to do these things and plus you have social media platforms that just recently shut down like american dod and authentic accounts so there are so many challenges but the sooner we understand those challenges and have courage to um overcome those obstacles the easier it will be to counter Russia because one thing I will tell you, Russia might be losing on the ground um, in, in Ukraine, but Russia is not losing in information space. It's interesting you say that because that was actually going to be my next question, which is that the conventional narrative is that Russia propaganda, obviously once once considered the most effective in the world, has arguably largely failed in the war it's waged online and elsewhere, at least in the early months of the war. I just wondered whether you agreed with that analysis. I firmly disagree with that analysis. And this is why. Who stated that? Uh, scholars and policymakers and people on Twitter or people in Africa or Venezuela, for example, because the world does not revolve around Brussels, London, or Washington, D.C., with all due respect. And people on Twitter might not believe that monkeypox was created by CIA or the our, our Department of Defense, which is exactly what Russian the uh, Ministry of Defense claimed that we developed monkeypox in one of our bio labs. That's what they openly claimed just a few months ago. So people, you know, like you and me may not believe in that thing, but I can guarantee you that people in Africa firmly believe that the food crisis stemmed from the U.S., that the United States 
is responsible for this war because allegedly we are waging a proxy war. They do believe in in the role of biolabs. So the information space is very wide and Russia is not only targeting the United States, but Russia is targeting everywhere possible to create chaos in places such as Africa, where information operations have been on a constant over the past decade let alone what Russia is doing in, in places such as Venezuela or, or, or Asia using their um, RT or Sputnik, uh, inauthentic accounts like bloggers uh, or, or, for example, agents of influence, um, social media influencers. It's a very, very um, um, uh, wide space with numerous tools that Russia has at its disposal to discredit uh, the West. And look, this is nothing new because even during the Cold War, I always love to use this example. And this is one of my favorite uh, uh, disinformation campaigns. And I'll tell you why. Uh, when during the Cold War, actually, Russia uh, uh, was spreading uh, disinformation that the United States uh, it was called like Operation Denver that we uh, developed HIV, um, that CA actually developed HIV specifically to target black people um, and use that as an ethnic weapon. Uh, so I'll just give you a very, a very concrete example how it works nowadays. Uh, the messages are very similar. What is the difference? Uh, the difference is uh, uh, the media space that now with social media you can spread such disinformation is super easy. So, for example, uh, uh, the Russian government openly claims that uh, we uh, used uh, bioweapons specifically to target the Slavic people. Um, they openly stated that. Um, then the second thing is, for example, they claim that we developed uh, um, bioweapons uh, uh, to uh, where we use actually migratory birds to deliver such bioweapons, and then they became a little bit more tech uh, advanced, so they accused us of using drones. And um, I just use a, one very concrete example. There are numerous examples uh, like that that are unfortunately very much believable, you know, um, in the West. And how? Sh what should we do about this? I do not actually think that uh, we should uh, counter that information by saying, "Oh, you know, Russia is lying." Um, if I had any opportunity to do this, I would, for example, declassify documents from uh, Russian um, um, from Russian biolabs programs even during the Cold War, and to tell the truth about, for example, Russian games with uh, maybe smallpox, and to put Russia in the defensive in the information space. I would make you know humorous and funny memes, uh, and to use that. Um, uh, to tell the truth uh, to every of those places that I just mentioned where such information operations actually work. So we do have tools. The problem is whether we have courage to do it in the way that we did during the Cold War. I think it's been interesting as well seeing how since the war started, some of the intelligence services, at least I'm, I'm specifically talking about the British ones, have been more open in certain information spaces than they would normally be. They've been commenting on, on Russia. They've been saying after the fact or sometimes before the fact what they believe Russia is about to do. That would never have happened during the Cold War. They've made much more open. I think that's them trying to adapt their strategy in order to... I think there was even a term that was used that was sort of pre-assuming what Russia was going to do next in this space. And that's something new. So just wondered if you could comment on 
the manner in which and maybe you don't think they're doing enough, the intelligence services in the West have tried to counteract and adapt to this new style of warfare. So to begin with, a lot of those influence operations are covered, so I have no idea what's happening. However, one thing that I can tell you exactly what you said, uh, whenever, you know, we see Russian narratives, um, it is, so the way the Russian military operates, they use information operations as a prelude to their kinetic use of force oftentimes. And even though some of them can be lies, there might set actually informational conditions for their next moves, which is exactly what what the UK understood very, very well last year. And they put forward uh, a narrative of taking away that opportunity from Russia to use that to justify the use of force, which was extremely brave. Like, I was so impressed when the UK did it. And uh, um, But the UK, you know, uh, also understands very, very well Russian mentality and culture and um, the decision-making processes over there. So they really know how to target um, Russia uh, in 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 um, in a way that it can really hurt them. And Russia hates that more than um, anything else. So the UK did a proper thing, I think, using that. And I see more and more like a UK, uh, a British uh, um, um, statements on Russia's next moves. And I'm glad you know that the United Kingdom does not defend, you know itself like from uh debunking every single lie that russia is saying about uk and we already you know discussed about russian influence operations inside uh the united kingdom uh, so uh this is a perfect way to put russia on the defensive so um they should defend themselves from us we've talked about africa and made a reference to some of the central asian states and the disinformation campaigns that russia is doing there You're also a keen observer of the Balkans, somewhere that we've perhaps not discussed on the podcast as much. To those who know little about the region, what's happening there at the moment in this space and what's Russia's role in trying to destabilise the region? So the Balkans has not been on the agenda of the West for at least uh, two decades. Um, And European Union... um, has been trying, you know, to put a Balkans on this up European Union path. But one thing that they failed to do um, is that they did not pay attention to Russian um, Russian operations there. And whoever thinks that this whole thing with Ukraine, that the Russian Ukraine is just a novel thing, is sorely mistaken because it has been going on for almost a decade. And the Balkans was also part, just like a... Um, Everything that has been happening in Georgia or Armenia, it's part of a big picture, you know, for Russia. So Russia has been investing tremendous resources in Serbia, in in Republika Srpska, um, in Montenegro to sow chaos in the region. Russia does not care to occupy the Balkans, uh, but they are looking for a new space uh, to sow chaos. So the West pays more attention to the Balkans instead of Ukraine. As they did in Syria, one could argue as well. Yeah. Exactly. So it's absolutely the same strategy. And what Putin is really trying to do, he is specifically targeting the far-right groups right now to install chaos in in Kosovo uh, and to position himself as a mediator and then to blackmail the West and tell them, you know, there will not be like a 
peace uh, without, you know, me as a mediator. And then you have, of course, you know, the Serbian president who has also his own goals, who also benefits from those crises whenever there is like internal issue. He escalates the crisis and then he de-escalates and then, you know, he is using that to negotiate with for his own deals with the West. So it's very complex situation. And uh, the reason why I'm very, you know, concerned is that I have never seen um, so like a Russia, for example, just recently opened RT. They've been operating Sputnik for uh, many years in Belgrade. Telegram, uh, Russian Telegram is going absolutely uh crazy about uh, uh, inflaming all those narratives regarding um, uh, Kosovo. Uh, and of course, they blamed United States actually for opening a new front line uh, to challenge Russia. So look, Russia will not be able militarily to help Serbia. Um, they cannot roll on tanks there or to send even jets. They sent lots of weapons in the past, even some of them are clearly useless. We see that in Ukraine. But what Russia will continue to do is to inflame this chaos in Kosovo, in Republika Srpska. And I'm also very concerned, you know, about Montenegrin polarization there um, to solve chaos. And then uh, uh, that we spend, you know, time uh, and energy on focusing on the Balkans and fixing situations there instead of focusing fully on, on Ukraine. How bad do you think things could get in the Balkans in, in the years ahead? I mean, is this, are we talking, you know, serious enough for things to erupt into real serious violence as we've seen in, in, in decades previously? Or, or is this more destabilizing it within certain political confines? So it's very difficult to predict, and I will tell you why. In 2021, um, in December, I was very much convinced that the Balkans will be next uh, battlefield for, for Putin. It was the part of the game. Um, the thing is, uh, Ukraine clearly has shown that um, Russia is not such a power that Putin claims to be. So as long as Ukraine um, continues to win, the Balkans uh, will not erupt in the conflict that we see uh, that, that we saw during the 90s. Um, uh, as soon as Russia um, is over, uh, also uh, leaders in the Balkans will have no leverage to uh, blackmail the West, which is a good thing. However, I also do not buy this argument that the situation um, in the Balkans um, has been resolved with the latest uh, mediation. I am quite convinced that we might actually see new escalations in the region and the new pattern of escalating and then to de-escalating. Uh, so it is definitely uh, something that the West should pay attention um, to, but not to allow to be distracted from uh, Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, Ivana, for a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.